Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here, for each person who made the effort to get here, for women who may still be on their way. Pray that you would open the way and that you would help them not be flustered with everything they have to face just to get here. But we are grateful that we have a place to come and that we have the freedom to come and that we have copies of your word. And Father, I pray that that you would give us hunger and thirst to know you more, to be reading it, to be asking the Holy Spirit for understanding, and to obey it. And so tonight, we just offer ourselves to you over the next hour and a half, and we say, Holy Spirit, come be our teacher. We pray that you would open our eyes to all these wonderful things in your word, in your law, your truth, And I pray that you would guard my mouth and that you would use it to say what you want to say. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So real quick, the first night we talked about the foundation of fellowship. And that is very important for 1 John because, as you'll see tonight, he gets into some pretty sticky, difficult things about who we are based on fruit in our life. And I don't want us to get caught up in, I have to do everything right. I have to perform. I have to, you know, be a perfect person and check off all the things to make sure that I'm a child of God. That's not the direction he wants you to go. He wants you to go the opposite way. Know who you are. Know who you belong to. Spend your time focusing on knowing him, worshiping him, walking with him, and then the fruit comes out of that. But sometimes it's easy, of a, easy for us to get focused on, got to do everything right. And that's kind of backwards, and it's a difficult way to live. And that's not the way he wants us to live. So the foundation is fellowship. Everything we do stems from our relationship with God. That's why even we share the gospel, because we want people to come into fellowship with the Father and the Son, which is where we live in that fellowship. And if you remember from John 17, what's Jesus' definition of eternal life? This is eternal life, that they know you, Jesus talking to the Father, that we know the Father and the Son. That's eternal life, knowing them. Eternal life is a relationship. When you know them, when you become part of their fellowship, that life doesn't end because their life is eternal and you are now included in that fellowship. And so your life doesn't end either. That's why it's called eternal life. But it's not just living forever. It's the relationship you have is the kind of relationship that doesn't end and that's why it's eternal life. And I know that I've said that, but I want to make sure I drive that home because it changed the way I think about it. It doesn't have to start after you die. Sometimes we think, you know, our life is here, and then we move on to eternal life. No, it starts as soon as you come to know the Father and the Son, and that is, that is your eternal life. So that was our first foundational night. And then we came into the first of two big sections in the letter that they both start with, this is the message. 
And the first message is, God is light. And what does he mean by light? Purity, perfection, holiness, because it says in him there is no darkness at all. And I love the fact that he added the at all. And so we start to see this contrast. And if you remember, we, we have two columns. Ooh, and that reminds me, if anybody is new and didn't pick up their notebook, besides the notes that we have um, here in the three-ring binder, I have a few handouts that we're kind of filling out as we go, and they're in the little pocket. And one of them that we used a lot last week, but you can always catch up if you haven't done it yet, is I, I named it the Cosmic Battle. And it just has a line down the middle, so we have two columns. And one side is good, and one side is evil. And John uses contrast throughout his whole letter. So the next one was God and devil, which we noticed looked a lot like good and evil. Light and darkness, and, and lots more. But I just wanted to review that in case you didn't know that from before. And... I will finish with time for us to get in groups. And so if there's anything that you haven't caught up on, like these these pages that you're filling in things, we can work on that together later, okay? So don't worry about it. But anyway, that was the first one. And the basic message about God is light is those who know God obey his commands. That's what I was getting on earlier. It doesn't start with, i got to do everything right to show that I know God. No. We focus on knowing God, and naturally, that is going to produce in you the desire to obey his commands. And then I mentioned how we added several words to these uh, columns, and we mentioned two extreme doctrines. Do you remember those? One was perfectionism, which is a word we hear a lot, so it's kind of easy to understand. It's, I do everything right, and he even says, there's people who say, I have no sin. Or I have not sinned, both either present tense or past tense. And John says both of those cannot be true. Because the Bible says all have sinned, right? So we're not going to fall on that side that we're sinless, but we're also not going to fall on the other side. And this may be a word you don't hear as much, antinomianism. But it just means we're against the law. We're saying there's no more law. Everybody can do whatever they want. You have license to sin because now we're under grace. But there is still a moral law, even though we're under grace, correct? So those are the two extremes, and John is talking about how we walk in between those. And I use the word authenticity. And that's one of the 12 values in this church. If you go in the atrium, you'll see it written right up there on top. And what it means is we don't claim not to have sin. We're authentic about saying, you know, I messed up. We read in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you, right, and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then you get back on track and you keep going. So we're not saying it's okay to, to do whatever you want. We're saying, no, God has a high standard of obeying his commands. He's not saying just forget about the law. And when I say law, I don't mean 
the sacrifices that obviously we don't have to do anymore because Jesus was the last sacrifice. But there's still a moral law of how we live, of how we treat each other. Righteousness. John talks about a lot. Keeping his commands, living as righteous people. So that doesn't change, but we don't claim that we're sinless. So that's the authenticity. We're trying to live that way, but we're not pretending or putting on some false face that we have everything together. And we finished last week by saying, thankfully, God didn't lower the standard. He said, this is, this is how I want you to live. This is what's going to be good for you. And instead of lowering the standard so that we could do it, he raised us up with Christ. He gave us a new nature, and we're going to look at that today. And one of the main things Jesus commands, first walking in the light, and the other is what the world tells us about how we love, which was the commandment, the new commandment. I don't know if any of you in that second section we looked at had trouble finding this old commandment that's also a new commandment. Do you remember that section? I remember reading that over and over and saying, okay, Lord, what's the old commandment that's a new commandment? Well, that's the commandment that Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, which was different than the Old Testament. The new covenant, the commandment he gave his disciples on the last night was, love one another as I have loved you. So the new commandment was love. And he calls it also an old commandment because it was old to them because It was the original gospel message, and this is 60 years later that he's writing to the church, and new false doctrines have come up, and people are getting confused, and they're saying, no, now you have to do this, or now there's this new idea, and he's saying, no, 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 no. Go back to the original old command that Jesus gave us, to love one another. Okay, so that's why he calls it the old command that you've had from the beginning, the beginning of the church, the beginning of the new covenant, the beginning of the gospel. And it is this old command slash, some people call it new command. Does that make sense now? All right. And tonight's verse starts with what not to love. Because when we put love and hate up on our columns, we had to make sure we remembered God doesn't love everything and God doesn't, God can hate some things too. So it's not like love is always good and hate is always bad. It depends on the object of our love and hate. And we're going to see what that is. Okay, so starting with verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. So the first thing we need to do is define world because that sounds difficult, not to love anything in the world. World is cosmos, and it refers to the world systems that are anti-Christ. The systems this world is built on is not the way Christ brought his kingdom. Remember, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So that's what we're referring to. And specifically, it doesn't refer to people. How do we know that? Who are we told to love? Just people that are 
believers? Even our enemies, exactly. So there's no person that doesn't fit into the category of somebody we should love, right? So that so make sure you know that when it says don't love anything in the world, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these systems that are contrary to the way God wants us to think and live, okay? And remember that not all love is the kind God advocates, which, you know, in our world, I hear all the time, love is love, right? Not exactly. You have to define it. But it is impossible. This is John's logic here. Impossible to love this world system if you love God because it is anti, meaning opposite of or against God and what he represents. So we're not going to love the thinking and the, the, the way the world operates because it's opposite of who we are as believers in Christ. Okay, that's what John is saying here. And to give you some um, other scriptures that go right along with it, Jesus said in Matthew, this is 624, no one can serve two masters. You can't love God and the world, basically. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He didn't put the world there. He put money because that's the way the world functions, right? On money. And then Paul also in Galatians 6.14 said, I am crucified, meaning he's dead to the world. So He went full out into exactly what John is also saying, not loving the world. But there are things that tempt us, and John's going to specify what these are. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The things that are in the world that we battle against, he sums up into three areas. And I define them, desires of our physical body, desire for material things, and the desire to control or rule ourselves. We'll briefly look at all of each of these. The two most common desires of our physical body, what John calls lust of the flesh, are probably sexual cravings and food cravings. Those are the two most common in the world. But God made our bodies with both of these cravings, so they're not inherently wrong, right? The problem is when we no longer control them, but they control us. Self-control would be the word to put in this category, I would say. And I think 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 13 um, really helps. Paul says, he's quoting, so someone may say, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So basically, these two areas may be strong areas of temptation, but 
they're not wrong in themselves. It's just, are we going to let them control us, or are we going to have the self-control to control them? But that's the first area. The second is materialism. Wanting to have things that we see. John calls it lust of the eyes. And I would say it has a lot of overlap with the first because you can see food and think, ooh, that looks good, I want that, right? Or you can see lots of other things in this world. But again, the problem lies not with the objects themselves, like if you happen to find a really nice pair of glasses or something like that, right? But with our hearts, whether our hearts run after these things, which are temporary in place of God, who is eternal. And I just want to remind us that God is a good father who loves to see his children enjoy his gifts. And I know there's lots of people who have lots of things in this world, and I don't think God is upset with that because they have learned to enjoy them as gifts from him and not put their focus on the gifts. So I finished by saying, we need to love the giver more than the gifts themselves, right? And that's the bottom line with this one. Uh, just for a little help, Luke tells us in chapter 12 that Jesus said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And I didn't write it in here, but it keeps coming to mind. Um, if any of you guys were in the Proverbs class, do you remember the verse about when um, he asks, don't give me neither poverty nor riches, because if I have too little, I might be tempted to steal and dishonor the Lord. If I have too much, I might be tempted to forget about him and think I don't need God. So I, that's kind of what this says to me also. Okay, the final area... I would say is probably the most dangerous and the most far-reaching, meaning it tempts, I would say, everybody probably in this world, the pride of life. And you may have noticed I defined it as the desire to control or rule ourselves. Whether you've ever heard it explained that way, this is rebellion against God. It's when we say, consciously or unconsciously, God, I want to do things my way. And there's a helpful evangelistic tract that we used with the kids um, last summer called Who Will Be King? If you've never seen it, it's very helpful. I tried to find it. I found the more adult version. It looks like this. The kids' version is blue and has more kid-like drawn pictures. But it explains the gospel in this terminology of Am I going to reject God as king, or am I going to take him as my king and say, not my will, basically, but yours be done? If you've never seen it, it's a very helpful way to look at the gospel because it, it, it centers right on this idea of, you know, am, do I want to be my own ruler, my own king, or am I willing to say there's somebody else who knows better to, than me, and I'm willing to submit to him? Who does the, who know? do you know who does that tract or who it's by? We have them here at church. I, I can find more for you, but no, I don't remember who it's by. 
And then the, this verse from 1 Samuel is what came to mind um, thinking about this area. This is actually um, the first king of Israel, and he is getting reprimanded. Um, this verse says, For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And um, that was King Saul who just said, you know, the Lord said to do this, but I'm going to do it this way. And it wasn't, he tried to make it sound like it wasn't direct obedience. I'm actually doing this for you, Lord, to show you, you know, how much I want to. It was actually bringing him sacrifices when God had told him to kill all the animals. And he said, no, I brought them back so I could sacrifice them to you. But the difference was, are you going to try to turn down and do them your way? Or are you going to do them my way? And this is where we get the phrase when he says, I desire obedience instead of sacrifice. And then I gave you some more verses not to look at tonight, but in case you want to do more at home, um, there's several verses you can look up for each of these three categories. You can just put a star there or circle it if you want to look at them later. But we have been given specific instructions on how to wage war against the world. So these are the three areas that John tells us we're likely to be tempted by, but not to love these areas and run after these things, right? How do we fight against them? 2 Corinthians 10 tells us how we fight against them. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And you may have heard of books talking about the battle of the mind. This is so important because everything that turns out to be an act of sin committed in the flesh starts usually with a thought in the mind. So we take captive those thoughts and we make it obedient to Christ. I just thought that was a very helpful um, scripture to remember. And to know that this battle won't last forever. Now we're going on in John, verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Aren't you glad that these battles that we have to fight of the flesh are not forever? These things are going to pass away. Everything that's in the world is temporary. But those of us walking with the Lord, we get to go on forever. The world system and its desires must pass away because it's not of God. Remember what I explained at the beginning about the only things that are eternal are what is connected to God and that fellowship of the Trinity. What are the only things in this world that will continue on to the next world? Think about it. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, His Word, and people's souls. 
People's souls are eternal. We don't know where they will spend their eternity, depending if they belong to the fellowship of the Trinity or if they don't. But everything else passes away. Only those things will live on. It gives you perspective on what's important in this world, doesn't it? Yes. Those of us who do belong to God, John says those who do his will, have God's life, which is eternal life, and that's why it will never end. All right, we have to move on. Verse 18, dear children, he loves us. This is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. If you're keeping track of the this is how we know statements, highlight that one, add it to your sheet. We have a paper because there was things that gets repeated over and over on the first night when we looked at the overview of John, and one of them is he often says, this is how we know, this is how we recognize, this is how this or other. And so we have some of those if you want to mark it. But it's important here to know what he's talking about when he says antichrist. Antichrist means in opposition to and also oftentimes trying to be a substitution for Christ. And this word, interestingly, only appears in John's epistles. Nowhere else in the Bible. I was like, I wonder where else we can compare antichrist. Nowhere. John's the only one that uses it, and not even in his gospels, only in the epistles. Not even in Revelation. Does that surprise you to, yeah. to know? Antichrist is not in Revelation. The Antichrist that we think of, who rises to power during the tribulation, he's called the man of lawlessness by Paul in 2 Thessalonians, and he's called the beast in Revelation. And he does have some other names too, but not Antichrist except for by John. And here, Antichrist is not referring only to that person, but anything that sets itself up against Christ. That's why he says, many have already come. Anything that is setting themselves up against opposing the true gospel of who Christ is, is an antichrist. Okay? Um, Paul also warned the Ephesians in Acts 20, verse 30. He's... He's saying that he's leaving them and saying he probably won't see them again. And he's warning them, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And that happens later. He was warning them. Jesus also said one of the signs of the end times would be many false messiahs will arise and these things are now happening in John's day. So that's why he says, this is how we know it is the last hour. Because Jesus said, when it comes down to those last days, and if you remember, I know not all of you have been here since we started doing these Bible studies with Mickey, but she has shown a chart of the, the whole time since the earth was created. And it goes all the way from... The beginning, we're Adam, all the way through the end of our time and the end when Jesus comes back. And 
if you divide it into a thousand year increments and look at where people are in the Bible, we have lived about 6,000 years just based on the lifespan of the people that, that we know in the Bible. And then the seventh would be the millennium. And so these last 2,000 years, you may think, what do you mean it's the last hour? It's been the last hour for 2,000 years. But if you take that in consideration of since it began, these are the end days of the whole time of, since creation. Does that make sense? And Jesus says, in those last days, this is what you're going to see. False messiahs, another word for that is antichrist. And John says, we're seeing that happen. That's how we know it is the last hour. And now he's about to touch on a subject that we mentioned from the very beginning. We think one of the reasons he probably wrote this letter was because there has been a division. A lot of people left the church, and people are confused and wondering what's the truth. And he says, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Are you following his logic? Interestingly, this is the first time he uses the word they. Think about the beginning. It was always we or I and you. I write this to you. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And it's he. And when he uses we, he's talking about the other disciples, the other apostles, talking to believers. And now he says they. Okay? He's referring to the people who have turned against Christ and left the church. And his logic is, since those who belong to Christ are kept in him, John says, the fact that they left showed that they never really did belong to Christ. Does that make sense? And then he, he continues on, but you, it's like, shoo, he's not including us in the they. But you, something different for you guys, you have an anointing from the Holy One. First time we see that word anointing too, and I'll talk about it in a minute. All of you know the truth is what it says in some versions. Some versions say all of you know all, depending on how you translate that. In the ESV, it says all of you have knowledge. And one person who I really admire sums it up by saying all of you are in the know. And this is all based on this word ido, which is one way to translate the word know. In your notes, first it talks about anointing. So let me just mention that before I jump to Ido. It's only used by John, again, in the New Testament. Now, it is in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. You'll see the word anointing. But in the New Testament, only John uses it. And when he's talking about the anointing, he's talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not just like some special anointing that only some people have. It's not like, okay, you've been anointed to be a pastor, but nobody else. No. The anointing is the Holy Spirit. And everybody gets it in the New Testament. 
Anybody who comes to Jesus is one of the promises. When Peter said, believe and be baptized, you will get two things. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you have that Holy Spirit, the anointing, that's why he says you know the truth. You know what has been taught from the beginning. And Ido is the kind of know that means you perceive with the mind. Oftentimes, no is translated as this word gnosis, or some people say gnosis because it has a G at the beginning. And that's more of a knowing by intuition. And there's nothing wrong with that word. It's used a lot. But it is where we get that term Gnosticism and the Gnostics that thought they had some special kind of knowledge that hadn't been revealed in the original gospel message, but now they were getting some new knowledge. It's kind of a, almost like a new age kind of thing. Um, and so she's saying, the lady who, who was explaining this word, Ido, but this is actually John, he's saying, you know the truth. You don't need some new knowledge. I think I wrote a sentence here. John is saying to his readers, who is the true church, you're not like those who left based on some new enlightenment. You know what the Holy Spirit has taught you from the beginning. And over and over, you'll see in this letter, stick with what Jesus taught us from the beginning, the original message from the original disciples. You don't need new knowledge. And that's what he's about to say next. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And no lie comes from the truth. Who's the liar? It is whoever denies Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So basically, the truth about who Jesus is, that he is the Christ or the Messiah, they're both the same, the Son of God who came in the flesh, that truth is central to the gospel message. If someone denies Jesus, they don't have the Father. Whoever says they know the Father, they're going to say yes to Jesus also. And that's exactly what Jesus says in John 12. And in 1320, he says, whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. They're a package deal. He says, if you, if you recognize the Father, you will recognize me. And then in a little bit, we're going to see if you don't, that means he's not your father. And then it gets a little sticky. But again, he goes back. As for you. See that what you have heard from the beginning, what's the beginning? We're not talking about the beginning of creation. The beginning when they first heard the news of the gospel, when the church is formed, yes. What you have heard from the beginning remains in you. Stick to the original gospel. Paul says this in Galatians 1. Don't accept any new gospel which is no gospel at all, he says. If anybody comes to you and preaches a gospel that is not Jesus Christ and him crucified, don't believe it. We're not changing the original message. The original message stays the same. 
That's his argument over and over. He just uses it in different wording to try to get his point across. Is everybody following? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, next page. This is still the same verse. And if it does, this original message remaining in you, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. So even though he's calling us out sometimes and saying, hey, if you're not walking like this, you're showing that you're not. You don't belong to the Father. And that's, that's a difficult thing. But then he's reassuring us. If you are staying with the message, believing the original gospel message, walking with him, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us. What is it? Eternal life. Eternal life which doesn't start when you die. It is the relationship with God that you have now and doesn't end. Amen. Okay. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. That can also be translated deceive you. So this harsh language that he's saying, he's like, don't worry. I'm writing these things about those who are trying to lead you astray, the ones who left. As for you, see how he goes back to that again? The anointing you received from him remains in you. You do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real or true, not counterfeit, not a lie, just as it has taught you, Remain in him. Now, if you're like me and I see you do not need anyone to teach you, well, that's dangerous. You've got to have good teachers in your life. He's not saying spirit-filled believers don't need any teaching or none of you would be here, right? We want to learn from each other. What he's saying, you don't need some new special, special knowledge these Gnostics were boasting of having. They would say that they would have these visions and they, they would have some new, something different than the gospel, that this is what you need to know now and this is how we're going to live now. And he's saying, no, you don't need something new. You need to remain in what the Holy Spirit taught you from the beginning. The Holy Spirit is not going to change his message. He may teach you new things, but it will always be in line with the original message. You may grow in your understanding, right? It's not like you're never going to learn anything new, but it's not going to be different because that would be no gospel at all, as Paul called it. You following? Good job. I can see it in your eyes. You look like you're doing good. And the message the Spirit taught from the beginning remains the same, and it is that we should continue to abide in him. Did you notice he said, this message that he has taught you to remain in him. I can just hear him referring them back to that message from John 15 about abiding in him. The vine and the branches, anyone who remains or abides in me bears much fruit. But apart from me, how much can we do? Nothing. So he's reminding them of that original teaching. And in John 14, he also says the Holy Spirit will teach you and remind you of the things I've taught you. So that's what he's saying. You have the teacher in your life. 
You don't need somebody to bring you something different and new. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. This is the only reference to the second coming of Christ in the letter. And what we think about the future impacts greatly how we act in the present. Sometimes we don't realize that, but it makes a huge difference. The perspective of Christ's return is great motivation to continue to live as he taught us. You see people who don't think he's coming back? They don't have a whole lot of motivation for how to live here. You know, you hear them say, well, this life's all we got, so just make the most of it, you know, do whatever you want. And then when it's over, it's over. No, he is coming back. And he wants us to be ready, a pure, spotless bride for him to come back for. And that is great motivation. All right, verse 29. I know I'm going quickly, but we got to go through so you have time for your groups. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So, he's going back to the topic of fruit. A good tree going to bear good fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. Okay, that's basically what he's saying. And this is the first time he uses the language born. In previous verses... He said those who have, are in fellowship with him, right? If you claim to walk with him, if you know him or are in him, that's how he's talked about it so far. Those, will, those are the people who will walk in the light, keep his commands, and live like Jesus did, showing that by loving brothers and sisters. And now John uses this na- new language of birth, whoever you are born of. And this is also in his gospel. If you think about his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, that's when he first brings up this idea of you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, I can't go back into my mother's womb. Remember that conversation? And he says, no, you have to be born again. And this is the language he brings up now. And it it brings the idea of like father, like son, or daughter, obviously, for us, meaning those who are born of God, will look and act like him. Okay? And he's about to go on and explain this a little more. But he takes this idea of us being born of God, and he just gets excited and says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that he calls us children of God. We're born of him, and he calls us children. And I think maybe we get used to hearing that, But John is still like, wow, it's amazing that he calls us his children. If you remember our uh, illustration of moving from darkness to light, from an enemy of God to a child of God, when we had those contrasting columns, if you were here last week, there was no way to get across. There was no crossover. Remember, you were on one side or the other, and there was no way you could get except now he calls us his children because of Jesus. So John is like, this is amazing. This is what we are. 
And the reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. If we're his children, if we're like him, if we're born of him, how do we expect anything different than what they recognize or did not recognize in Jesus? I wanted to bring up John 1, starting in verse 11. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Okay? Are you following the point that he just said? The reason the world doesn't know us is they didn't know him. He came to his own. He came into this world to the people he had a part in creating. And they didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, or do, I would say even in present tense, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is a very important verse. And I know it's not necessarily the topic of 1 John, but I can't skip it without making sure everybody understands the importance of this. Because I hear all the time, we are all God's children. Meaning everybody in the world. We're not. And people might not like to hear that, but biblically it's just not true. What do you have to do to be a child of God? Born again is true. Receive him, according to this verse, except would be another word for it. And... Right, but in this verse, it says, believe. To those who believed him, to those who received him. Believe is very good. I believe God is who he is, but if you don't receive him as Lord, it says, even the demons believe and shudder. So you believe who he is, and you receive him as Lord. Who will be king? Me? Do, am I the one who decides I'm going to rule my life the way I want to rule my life? Or do you say there's another king and I'm willing to submit to his authority? That's what this verse is saying. He gives you the right to become his children. Did it say that you have to do everything right? No. It says you believe him and you choose to receive him as Lord. It's important to know what makes you a child of God versus a creation because every single person does have value because we are all created in the image of God. So any person who is not a believer still has huge value as a creation of God in his image. And up till their very last breath, they can always choose to become his child. Okay. If the world didn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God, it's no wonder they don't recognize us as children of God. <coughs> Dear friends, now we are children of God, right? We already have achieved that wonderful status, but what we will be <coughs> has not yet been made known. When Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. If you know me very well, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. For me, it's one of the most encouraging truths. First of all, because of his love, he's made us his children, which I just explained, which comes with rights of sonship 
and an incredible inheritance. You can read about that in Galatians. I gave you the verses. But then he says what we will be is still a mystery. You're already God's child, but what you will be when Christ appears, he says it's not yet been made known. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning we don't all have to die because some of us are going to be alive when he comes back, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. We're going to get a new different kind of body, basically is what he's saying. And I don't know exactly how, but Scripture says we will be like Christ. When Christ appears, he said, we shall be like him. This is a fulfillment of of Romans 8.29, which I feel like Tim mentioned just a few weeks ago, where God says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's your destiny. You may have specific things that you get called to do and your purpose, but everyone who's a believer has the destiny of being conformed to the image of Christ, and this is a fulfillment. We will be like him. And now it's about to tell us what brings about that change. We shall be like him. Why? For we will see him as he is. Think about that. When you see him, As he really is, when you get a good look at Jesus with your eyes all the way open, without anything distorting his image, you become like him. That's a hallelujah moment. Yeah! Thank you, Rose. Now, I mentioned this point when we studied John 17 because verse 24 says that he's asking the Father, he says, I want them to see my glory. And I was like, why? Why does he want us to see his glory? I don't think he's just trying to show off. Hey, look at all my glory. He wants us to see him as he is in all of his glory because that will make us like him. He always wants what's good for us. So I I just put down everything I wrote before because I wanted you to see it again. When we see him, we will become like him. I think it's because in a way he's contagious. When we are with him, His glory gets on us. Remember when Moses got to see God's glory? He only saw a little and for a brief moment and from behind as he was covered in the cleft of the rock. But even so, what happened to his face? It became radiant. God's glory got on him. Can you imagine when Christ appears and we get to look on his face? The face the book of Revelation says is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And look into those eyes that it says are like blazing fire. When John saw him, he fell at his feet as though dead. I don't know what my reaction will be, but I want to look into those eyes. It said the eyes are the window to the soul. The people who looked into Jesus' eyes in the Gospels were never the same. They saw truth, grace, compassion, and love, and they were changed for. 
and someday soon we will see him and we will be changed forever as well. But we don't have to wait until his second coming to start becoming like him. We can start looking at him now. Look into his character. Look into his heart. Exactly what we're doing now. Look into his word. The word is Jesus. Jesus is the word became flesh. Look into what he did and said and how he moved and how he spent his time. You've heard it said, you become what you spend your time looking at. Have you heard that? I think it's true. Be careful what you spend your time looking at or watching because you'll end up imitating what you see. The more time you spend looking at Jesus, the more you will look like him. So one day, we will be like him when we see him as he really is. But until then, we can start seeing him more and more clearly the more we learn about who he is by looking into his word, which is exactly what you guys are doing. So, I know I spend a lot of time on that one verse, but I love that one verse. <laughs> verse 3, all who have this hope, what hope? That we're going to look on Jesus and become like him, purify themselves just as he is pure. It makes us want to become pure as we see what he's like. Having this hope of seeing Jesus and being like him makes us want to purify ourselves now. It helps with that motivation we were talking about earlier to choose things that are right and not run after the temporary things of this world. All right, last section. Everyone who sins breaks the law. Feels like he just totally changed topics, doesn't it? Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And I've got to define this for you. Lawlessness is anomia or anomia, without the law. In some versions, it's translated instead of lawlessness as iniquity or transgression. And look at this word inside this extreme doctrine I talked about at the beginning, anti Nomianism, that nomian right in the middle is the law. Anti is against. A is kind of like our English un, but it's easier to say without because it's hard to say unlaw. So they translate it as lawlessness. Literally against the law. This is the false doctrine we talked about where it says we don't have to obey any moral law. Everything's permissible. But lawlessness, this word anomia, refers not to just individual acts of sin, but this is the true nature of sin, which originates from an attitude that resents God's moral demands. To be lawless does not simply mean to break the law. It means to disdain the very idea of a law to which one must submit. Are you following? So in summary, anomia is the rejection of God's authority and the exaltation of the autonomy of self. Again, this sounds like I get to be my own king. I get to do what I want to do with my life. I'm in charge of me. You're not the boss of me. 
That's what the little kids would say, right? And this is the root cause of rebellion. This is the root of sin and pride. This lawlessness. Do you remember that the Antichrist at the end who sets himself up as the ruler is called the man of lawlessness? And it's not just somebody who breaks the law. It's this idea of I'm throwing off the law. I don't want anybody to have authority over me. I am my own God, basically. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So there's a little differentiation between this lawlessness and the word sin is a different word in Greek. And we know that in chapter 1, John hit pretty hard that we should not say that we are without sin or that we have not sinned. But we definitely shouldn't be lawless. Do you see the difference? We may have sin because we may make mistakes, we may make bad choices, but our attitude is not rejecting God's authority. There's a big difference there. Okay? As the sinless sacrifice, Jesus took away our sins. But this attitude of lawlessness is why we need to be completely reborn with the new nature. John reminds us of the fruit that will be evident in one who is truly born again. You understand the difference? We may not be completely rid of sin in our lives, but when we're reborn... We don't have the nature that is lawless because we have chosen who's going to be king in our life. Okay, We're not perfect under this king, but we are not rejecting his moral law over our lives. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. This is difficult because I know some people in my life that are choosing to continue in sin. And I want to believe that they know him, but this word says they don't. Because when you really come to know him, when you're born again, you have a different nature. I'm not saying you do everything right, but you won't continue in a pattern of sin. That fruit is showing you don't really know him. You haven't really been born again. This is what John's saying, and I know it's difficult to hear. John is making that all-important distinction between those whose sin has been taken away and those whose sin remains because they have not truly come to know Christ. And maybe I should put as Lord. Maybe they know who he is, but they haven't come to know him as Lord the one who, oh, I did write in the next sentence. Look at that. The one who knows Christ as Lord will not continue to sin. And uh, on the first class, we talked about as a pattern of behavior, right? They cannot keep on sinning, John says, if they're abiding in Christ. We're not saying they live a perfect life with no sin, but also if there is no change in lifestyle, if they continue in a pattern of sin, they haven't come to know him. Because remember, when we see him, 
It changes us. We begin to look more like him. It might not happen overnight. Sometimes it does. You've seen people that just have a radical change overnight. But sometimes it's a slower process. Generally, it's a slower process. But things can't stay the same. You can't continue to live like you were before if you truly come to know Christ because you have a new nature. Our attitudes towards sin should be different. Maybe I haven't learned the self-control to make all the right choices yet, but my attitude is not that I want to rebel against God. My attitude is that I want to submit to him. You see that distinction? Rather than rejecting God's authority, we have the desire to submit to it. Dear children, I love that every time he goes back, he's like, I love you guys so much. I hope you're getting this. Do not let anyone lead you astray. Don't let them mislead you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Remember, he's, he's really referring to a lot of people who have been telling them, we've got some new knowledge. We've got some new ways to live. And they're living sinful lives and saying that they're on track, that they've heard that it's okay to do this. You know, this happened in John's time, but it's happened in in recent generations, that people come up with these new ideas they've gotten from God, and I can do this, that, and the other that's against the Bible because some vision or angel or somebody told me I can. No. He's saying, look at the fruit. He's saying, the one who does what is right is righteous, just like he is righteous. He's going to look like Jesus. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. He's not mincing words because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus gives several reasons for coming into the world. So the reason I put this in here is because People will be like, well, it says that the reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, the reason he came was to testify to the truth. Well, the reason he came was to save, seek and save the lost. Yes, all of those are all true. He didn't come to just do one thing, but they all go hand in hand. You see that testifying to the truth and saving people is destroying the work of the devil because he came to separate us from God. And Jesus is like, nope, we're fixing this. All right. Last page, verses 7 through 10, John goes back to the way we look and act and says that reveals who we belong to, the idea of rebirth. Read how Jesus used the same argument in chapter 8 of John. Oh, I wanted to do this all together. I don't know if I should because I want you to have time in your groups. But I'll just give a brief summary, and you can go back and read it. He is rough with these people. These are Jews. And they're like, we're Abraham's children. He's like, oh, yeah? If you were Abraham's children, you would recognize me. And in fact, since you're not recognizing me, you're actually uh, looking just like your father. What do you mean our father? Our father is Abraham. No, your father is the devil. (laughs) Go back and read it. He is rough on them. And this is exactly what John is referring to. He probably was sitting there right next to Jesus listening to that conversation, and he remembers it, and he's saying the same thing. 
He says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. If you are, then you are a child of the devil, which is his last verse, which is so hard for me to hear. But if you're born of God, you won't continue to sin, and he gives you the why. Because God's seed remains, dwells, or abides in you. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Here's the reason that we look like, act like, or as people say, favor our parents. Physically, their seed lives in us. You know, this is how the whole world works in science. The seed, right, produces the, the next generation. And that's why we have these traits. It's in our DNA. That, that's his basic argument. When we're born, our parents pass down to us the sin nature we inherit from Adam. When we're born of God, his seed comes into us. We get a new nature, a new DNA, we could call it. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This new seed produces a new way of life, and this new life is no longer a slave to sin. We could all just start singing that right now. We may be tempted. John told us there's things in this world that we have to say no to, but we're not a slave to it anymore. We got a new nature. And this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. That's kind of a little, that's where we're going next. We just did two weeks on the message of he is light. And now we're about to hear the message of God is love. So talking about doing what's right and also loving is where we're headed next. This strongly worded truth helps us recognize who's been born of God and who is still a child of the devil under the control of their sinful nature. Basically, he's saying, do they walk in light and love? I just gave you a little... Reminder, if you want to keep up with those pages, obviously it's up to you. Some people love to do that and some people don't, but it might be helpful if you want to keep up with the marks of a true disciple when he says, you know, someone who really knows me will do this, will look like this. Um, This is how we know statements. And every once in a while he'll just give a good summary. And I thought that was another page you might use. So break up into your small groups and Look at these four, um, three questions, and then to pray for each other. I'll just remind you, two is a small group. Three is also a nice small group. Four makes a small group, but if it gets bigger than four, it's not small anymore. Okay? So enjoy each other's company, and make sure you talk for a little while, but save time to pray for each other at the end, okay? Okay?